Castle, episode number 66, for August 18th, 2009. One Paper Airplane Graffito Love Note by Will McIntosh. Hello, this is Rachel Swirsky, Podcastle's editor. This week, the world has been feeling very small. Or at least the internet has been feeling very small. I was online Friday night planning for a trip into San Francisco when one of my friends from the Bay Area, Josh, says to me, the guy who runs XKCD is sleeping on my couch. In case you're one of the few people who doesn't know, XKCD is an online comic for geeks, science fiction fans, math majors, and linguists. It's drawn in stick figures at xkcd.com. So I say to Josh, what? How? How did that happen? And Josh says, Oh, he's a friend of a friend. I made him breakfast. He says we can call him Randy. I tell Josh that I refuse to believe his story. There is no way the guy who writes XKCD exists in three dimensions. At this point, Josh starts waxing poetic about internet celebrity. He knows the guy who writes XKCD. He knows several prominent bloggers. He knows the woman who runs Podcastle. Well, personally, I don't think of myself as an internet celebrity, but if I am, then it occurs to me that there must be people out there who think of me in the same way that I think of the guy who runs XKCD. If I don't think he can exist in three dimensions, then someone out there must be having a hard time thinking of me and Ben Phillips and Steve Ely as anything more than disembodied voices. Well. Let me take this chance to assure you, as the editor of a speculative fiction magazine, that in fact you are correct. Steve Ely, Ben Phillips, and I are just disembodied voices that haunt your MP3 player. We're rifling through your files right now. And you know that band you downloaded to your iPod because you secretly love them, but you'd die of shame if anyone ever found out? Well, we've found their songs and we are pointing and laughing. Our story today is One Paper Airplane Graffito Love Note by Will McIntosh. It looks like we somehow managed not to get bio information for Will McIntosh, so I have to improvise a bit. His fiction has been all over the place, Strange Horizons, Interzone, Futurismic, Asimovs. I've really enjoyed everything of his that I've managed to pick up. If we ran science fiction, I'd have bought his story Bridesicle the moment I read it in the January issue of Asimovs. One paper airplane graffito love note first appeared in Strange Horizons. It's read for us by science fiction and fantasy author Chris Reynaga, who makes his home in the San Francisco Bay Area. Chris recently graduated from Clarion West and celebrated his first pro sale. You can find him on the web at chris-reynaga.livejournal.com. Links in this introduction are available on our website, podcastle.org. Enjoy the story! One Paper Airplane Graffito Love Note by Will McIntosh A paper airplane drifted high in the sky above the field. I nearly crashed my bicycle, straining to follow its path as it circled above the treetops at the far edge. It held the wind beautifully. Pausing, it hovered over the field just as a seabird holds its position above crashing waves. I slowed to a stop, feeling for the ground with one foot. Afraid to take my eye off the craft, lest I lose it in the clouds. Neck craned, eyes to sky, I let the bicycle drop. 
I tracked the paper's elegant flight, running this way and that like a boy, as it slowly, slowly lost altitude. As it made its final pass, it gained speed, careening across the field. I loped after it as it tumbled end over end and lay still. I plucked it from the grass. It was folded in a distinct design, squat and wide with a hinged belly. It was covered in writing. I recognized Anna's handwriting instantly, and that familiar ache that I both loved and hated coursed through me. I flipped the hinge and unfolded the airplane. It was a letter to me, though, because it was a graffito confession. I wasn't named. The leaves outside my window rustle like dry paper. The cat, stalking prey in the yard, is a paper cat. The paper boy is a paper boy. The waning sun a light bulb. I miss you. Fingers trembling, fighting tears, I put it in my pocket. I would read it carefully in the privacy of my room above the sale shop. Through blurred eyes, I noticed that the field wasn't empty. A group of wood window frames sat in the center, propped against each other to form inverted Vs. Wiping my eyes with my sleeve, I went to examine them. They were blinds set in each frame over thick stained glass, and the blinds were covered with Anna's distinct handwriting. They were drafts of letters to me. Almost all of the words had been crossed out, with more words squeezed in above, also often crossed out. I squatted in front of one, ran my fingers across a wood slat, across her aborted words, sensing the struggle, marveling that her hand had just been here, pressing against the slat. In the distance, a motor car door slammed. Mady Sampson, the grocer's wife, was crossing towards me, head down in a black Sunday church dress and white gloves. Her Studebaker idled in the background, spitting gray smoke. I gathered up the windows to take with me. "'What are you doing, then?' Mady said, as she approached. "'I've just come to read those.' "'They were written to me,' I said defensively. "'I could see in her face that she didn't believe me, but, reluctantly, she turned toward her auto. "'Glancing back several times as I tucked some frames under my arm, "'clutched others in both hands, and struggled towards my bicycle. "'I wanted to get to my room to read what Anna had written.' to read the letters over and over until I'd memorized them, especially to decipher the words that had been crossed out, knowing that those were the words that she did not mean, yet also meant most. The words that would nourish me, set me longing for her until I couldn't eat or sleep, nor think any thought except of her. The ride back to town was a struggle, the frames digging pink creases into my palms. I rested in front of Etta McKenna's house, catching a breath and whiling away a few moments reading the vertically scribed graffito on her white picket fence, listening to piano music drifting from the house. The graffito was the confession of a woman who had lost a child after tripping on a sheet dangling from her laundry basket and tumbling down a hill. How proud Ed had been when she woke one morning to find her fence graced with a tragic tale, well and honestly told. I gathered the window frames and pushed on. In the white background of the railroad crossing sign, someone had squeezed a short love ode. I announced my love to Anka, who sold cakes outside the north doors of the Nestle plant. I'm far too late, I fear. Up ahead, the side wall of the post office announced the start of Chestertown proper. 
I smiled, thinking of the April day when Officer Darby directed old Mr. Scotch to whitewash that wall, which overnight had been covered with a blisteringly lovely confession from a man who ached with loneliness in a house packed with loved ones. Poetry it was. Miss Doherty came by as old Scotch was painting and shouted that she hadn't even read that one yet, and why would he be defacing a work of art in any case? When old Scotch told her that Officer Darby was the hand moving the brush, Miss Doherty had the police station packed with angry graffito aficionados within the hour. Precious little whitewashing took place in Chester after that. Since the graffito confessions began last fall, People had taken to long walks through town, stopping to read confessions, discussing them with companions and passers-by, quoting the pithier lines at the supper table. A talented graffito writer was held in higher esteem in Chester than the most fearsome batsman on the Chester Wildcats ball club, although, granted, no one knew the name of any graffito artist for certain, even if speculating on authorship was a favorite pastime. I've heard a hundred legends accounting for the origin of the graffito confessions that have swept Chester, and met a dozen people who take credit for pioneering it. But all of them are wrong. I know who started it, and why. It began last September. The familiar clink of hammer on chisel rang out over the rooftops, from Ben Chuck's wood carving shop around the back of Alton Tuckerman's shoe store. It was far too soon after his heart attack for Ben to be working. As far as I knew, he was still in the hospital all the way down in Doverton. I dropped the main staysail I was working on in my shop and headed down the alley between Tuckerman's and the drugstore to Ben Chuck's. A half a dozen life-size cigar store Indians set on mounds of dirt stood watch over his sprawling work area, which was scattered with scraps of wood and piles of shavings. It was not Ben working, but a woman, and she wasn't carving an Indian or a grizzly, or anything else that usually came out of Ben Chuck's woodshop. She was carving a wild stallion, its mane snapping in the wind, its front hooves flaying the air. The woman's skin was the color of dusk, her lips full to bursting, nostrils flared like a winded colt. She was wearing men's overalls that were far too big. Just as she caught sight of me, a train passed on the track set behind Ben Chuck's Indians. We waited for the rattle and thump to fade in the distance. "'It's absolutely lovely,' I said when it was quiet enough. "'But won't it block to the sidewalk outside of a cigar store?' She burst out laughing. "'I can't find any Indians in these.' She motioned to the blocks of wood stacked haphazardly around the big rolling door of the shop. "'There are horses trapped in most of them.' "'What will you do with all those horses once you've freed them?' It was an effort to look anywhere but into her eyes. When I dragged my gaze to the stallion or the line of chisel set out on a scrap of stained rug, it was like defying gravity. As soon as I relaxed, my eyes found hers again. "'Calliope,' she said, her smile mischievous. "'Ah, yes, of course. I can see where the pole would be set. It's beautiful work. Stunning.' She nodded, a blush blooming, clearly embarrassed. Really, I said, I've never seen anything like it. You're gifted. Moving on, she said. So what do you do? I make sales, I said. For ships, she said, her eyes wide. Is your shop nearby? Can I see it? Absolutely. I motioned ladies first, and we headed through the alley. Her walk was music, cello and flute and shaman's drum. As we walked, she told me her name was... 
Anna, and that she was Ben's niece, come to look after his shop while he recovered. She waved away my inquiries to her hometown and where she learned woodwork in the same way she'd waved away my compliments. Anna was delighted by the sails. She dug her way underneath the big staysail spread across the floor of my shop, laughing as she flailed her arms to and fro underneath. "'Why not swim with me, Samuel?' she said. And I did. I dove underneath the sail, and the two of us laughed like loons. We sat outside, winded, enjoying the crisping September air. Some people speak in sentences, others in paragraphs. With Anna, every word mattered. I never knew what word would come next. It drew me into a world where time was canted like a funhouse mirror. It was a breezy day in fall, the streets painted with leaves, the orange of pumpkins on every stoop. Anna loved the pumpkins. She pointed them out, laughing her deep, dusky brown laugh. Inspired, I took her hand and drew her down Nightingale Way to the edge of the town in Farmer Pope's field, the two of us running along the dashed white line. "'Where are we going?' she asked every few footfalls. "'You'll see,' I answered. The contrast of our laced fingers reminded me of the keys on Miss McKenna's piano. As we neared Pope's field, I slowed and pointed. Anna screamed with glee and ran into the field. It was aglow with pumpkins of all shapes and sizes. She ran from one to the other, hugging them and talking to them, pressing wet sloppy kisses to their waxy skin. "'Shall we go to the cinema tonight?' I asked, my heart tripping with spring love as I watched her. Her smile slipped. She caressed the fat pumpkin she was holding. "'No.' "'All right, then,' I said. "'But why not? It's a love story. You'd like it, I think.' She shook her head, slowly. Sadly, I thought. "'No?' She shook her head again. There was something behind her eyes. Her cheek was pressed to the pumpkins. Her smile vanished. She wouldn't say any more about it. It was Anna's way. I was learning to suffer silently. She shared only her joy. She stood, the moment broken, and headed toward the road. Her walk had lost its music. Trust me, I said. I hadn't moved from the heart of the pumpkin patch. She stopped. The light was waning, the pumpkins fading to ochre, the leaves whispering in a light evening breeze. I'll see some piece of my life there, she whispered at last. I went and took her hand, urged her to sit on a fat pumpkin so we could talk at leisure. I don't understand, I said. You'll see a piece of your life? In the movie. Some of the movie will be stolen from my life. What do you mean? I brushed her curls. Explain it in paragraphs. She rustled as if to stand, which would mean that she had said all she cared to say on the topic, but then she wrapped her arms around her knees. When I was nine, I was struck by lightning in a lemon grove behind my house. The force of it threw me across the grove, and it broke my back. But the pain was a fair price, because the strike turned me inside out, left me light as a feather, lifted like a cork on water. Anna explained why Anna had never craned her neck, but turned to face things full on. It did not explain why she didn't want to see a movie with me. I waited out the silence. We listened to the cricket's confessions for a time. Not a month later, I read a book about a nine-year-old girl who was struck by lightning in a lemon grove. 
Are you saying someone heard about your accident and used it in their book? She shook her head, stared at her fidgeting hands. Even small things that no one else knows are stolen. My dreams, arguments I had with my brothers as we walked the mud road. I had no idea what to say. It was madness what she was telling me, but I'd asked her to trust me, and I wouldn't pull my trust out from under her now. It happens all the time, she said. Books, movies, songs. How long has it been happening? I asked. When my mother died. That was the first, she said, her moon eyes filling with tears. Later I read it in a book about an orphan girl, just as it had happened. How did it happen? I asked, hoping the question wasn't too personal and scare her silent, or come across as the curiosity of a ghoul. It was full dark now. I took her hand, caressed her knuckles with my thumb. She shut her eyes tight. Mother sang like a bluebird. My voice was reedy and tasting of too much air, but a grown woman must have a young one if she is to earn any appreciation singing in courtyards. She spoke quickly and rhythmically, her body rocking, tears beginning to squeeze from the corners of crunched eyelids. I can still hear her, hear that beautiful song that unleashed the coins, see the tendons stretch tight in her neck, her head lifted toward the wall of windows rising on all sides. Was it the bird's fault? What happened? Was it after they appeared, circling over the courtyard by the thousands, lending their tweets and whistles to her voice, that mother reached a song no one had ever reached, a sound so pure and clear as a raindrop? But maybe it was mother's song that drew the birds, not the birds that drew the song. Or it was a loop, a song drawing birds, drawing song, drawing birds. There's no doubt, though, that the song drew the coins. All the wealthy in their velvet apartments leaned out their windows to listen and drop coins into the courtyard. The silver flashed in the sunlight as it fell, tumbling end over end, tinking on the cobblestone, rolling in ever smaller circles before laying still. When the coins began to fall, I spread my arms, laughing with delight, my singing interrupted, but Mother took no notice. Eyes closed, she continued singing the song she'd reached, and the birds called their appreciation, and the coins rained down thick on the ground, bouncing off my head and shoulders, cool under my bare feet. Their eyes, wide with joy, the rich emptied their purses, and then burlap bags. I scrambled above the rising silver tide when it covered my ankles. It sucked at my feet, like the sands beneath in-and-out waves at the edge of the ocean. And when Mother was buried to her waist, I turned my face to the silver rain and called out, Enough! The din of coins and birds drowned out my reedy voice, and the coins kept falling. I tugged at Mother, but she was entranced, and when she finally finished and opened her eyes, she was buried to the chest. She held me above the tide, urging me to swim, to stay afloat as the coins crashed down, a thunderous storm now, and when the coins covered her terrified eyes, I screamed, Mother, and dug for her, but the coins cascaded into the hole as soon as I dug it, and Mother's hands pushed me up until they were gone in an avalanche of coins that had gathered like a cliff against the side of one building and crashed over us like a wave. Anna stood, her cheeks wet with tracks of tears. I don't know who got all those coins, but it wasn't me. They were the soil on my mother's grave. Everything she was telling me had to be lies. But I didn't believe that she was a liar, so I had to believe that she was insane. It was a beautiful insanity, and I loved it. 
loved these canted sensibilities and outrageous delusions just as I loved the length and width of her fingers and the fish-line tangle of her midnight hair. I wonder sometimes if the scenes I don't recognize in a movie are things yet to happen, she said. If there's a motor car wreck, is that the moment of my death played on a twenty-foot screen for all to watch? Maybe it won't happen if you're with me, I said. Perhaps I could cut through the delusion, I thought, share my steady stone mooring with her, just as she shared her wild magic with me. She thought for a long moment. I fully expected her to refuse me. All right, she said. The sight of the theater lights banished Anna's melancholy. The colorful fantasy that was the Roxy beckoned to us, bursting from within between two nondescript red buildings like confetti. We ran the final block, squeezed through the brass door in a tangle of hips and limbs, oblivious to the stares of the other patrons. We stopped at the blue marble candy counter, faces filled with pussy willow set to each rounded corner. Our eyes were big like children's as we peered through the glass at the colorful candy boxes. Neckos for Anna, cherry bombs for me, and she headed for the stairs. It didn't surprise me that she would choose the balcony, which was closer to the stars, in an ounce-like flight. I followed right behind, loving who I was when I was with Anna, wondering at how the lightning had struck her, coursed into me, every time I touched her. The stars on the ceiling of the Roxy Theater twinkled in the boxed light that was dimming even as we hurried to seats in the back row. The curtain rose. The projector began its click-click-click just over our heads. Anna dug into my box of cherry bombs, fishing one out in a curled finger. It made a few trips around her mouth, and then, too impatient to suck on it for long, she bit it in half, the sound like breaking ice. A moment later, she was back in my box for another. She laughed as I started working on her neckos in retaliation. The neckos box was clutched between her thighs. On the way out of the box, I stopped and put my hand on her knee. She closed her eyes. Her inhale trembled. I leaned and kissed her softly. I dreamed about this moment, Anna said. I should feel guilty, but I don't. Someone shushed her from a few rows ahead. It was old Miss Young, who'd once been my fifth-grade teacher, glaring as if she might have a ruler in her handbag. Any other day, I might have been embarrassed. But now, it only set us giggling, though we settled down soon and watched the movie. My hand squeezing Anna's knee... We watched Warner Baxter and Ruby Keeler fall in love. She was a schoolteacher at a private girls' school. He sold sandwiches from a cart outside the gates. It was the perfect movie to see with Anna, and soon her head was on my shoulder. I thought it beautiful when Warner took Ruby's hand and led her down a street to show her something. When Ruby asked her where they were going, and Warner answered, You'll see. Something itched at me. Anna's finger tightened on my arm. When they reached the end of the street, and a pumpkin patch spread out before them, my chest filled with ice. Ruby squealed with delight and ran into the pumpkin patch, spinning and dancing. Anna sprung from her seat and hurried out of the theater. I followed, stunned, on clumsy legs. I found her leaning against a lamppost, sobbing. I wrapped my arms around her, felt her wet face on my neck. I hate it, she said. I hate it. My life is my own to tell, or not tell. I could hear in her voice that she did hate it. Not the impossibility of it, the attention of it. 
I couldn't believe what I'd just seen. My steady stone mooring shouted coincidence, but its voice sounded shrill and ready to crumble. You... you are a magical creature, I said. No! I'm not a magical creature. I'm a woman, flesh and blood. She took my hand and pressed it against her breast, right there, under the light of the street lamp. I'm normal, except for this one thing. Anna was many things. Normal was not one of them. I didn't believe you. I thought you must be addled, I said. I am addled. I laughed, and she joined me for a moment, and then her face sank back to sadness. I walked her home in silence. Anna grieved alone, despite my presence. It's my life to tell, she said, as we said good night. I won't let it be stolen. She closed the door. The next morning, a small crowd had gathered on the brick sidewalk at the crossing of Main and Orchard Street by the train depot. Orrin Habersham, his walrus mustache hiding the movement of his lips, and his wide-brimmed hat, the cast of his eyes, was pointing at something, as a few others nodded at whatever he was saying. I stopped in my tracks as I cleared the line of stores and saw what they were looking at. A line of boxcars that had been left to rest for the night on the second line of tracks was covered with writing. The conductor and brakeman were standing by the water tank, hands on hips, staring up at the boxcars. I shaded my eyes and read, When I was eight, I collected seashells. When I turned ten, I decided to collect friends instead. Every time I made a new friend, I'd write his or her name in my notebook. I had two hundred and eight friends by the time I turned eleven. The waist-high letters of the missive covered the first three boxcars. Other bits of autobiography were strung out across the rest of the cars. I found Anna, hard at work on a sea monster. You must be tired, I said. She smiled broadly, but kept working. If my life is to be paraded in public, I'll be the one to do it. I nodded, although she could not see the nod because her eyes were on her work. Will this stop your life from appearing in movies and such? I don't know. I think maybe it will. I imagined her intuition would prove correct. Who would possibly know the rules of this sorcery better than Anna? She put down her hammer and chisel and took me by the hand. Come on. Where are we going, I asked, not a hint of irony in my tone. You'll see, she said, not a hint in hers either. We joined the crowd for a spell, tisking and feigning surprise, echoing their talk of hooligans and what the world was coming to. Then Anna led me away toward the north edge of town. We walked nearly a mile to Boddington Bridge. The steel beams facing inward were festooned with stories, memories, reflections. The priest of my family's parish once went through my closet, counting my shoes and chastising me for the sin of vanity. Once in my sleep I reached the place where dreams are woven, and watched them well up in my mind like soap bubbles, until I was driven from the place by an angry cowled figure who told me not to mess with things I knew nothing about. I saw my grandfather killed by the seashore, struck on the head by a fallen coconut. One way I test the hearts of strangers is to tell them this, and see if they lead with laughter or tears. Why is death by a fallen coconut funnier than death by a fallen brick? Things I don't like that most people do. Tomatoes, magic axe, chewing gum, things that are blue. 
It's made of steel salvaged from the giant Ferris wheel from the 1893 World's Fair. Did you know that? Anna said. No, I didn't know that. It delighted me that she did, and it made me love her all the more. Someone had painted a confession onto the signs of Leave It Norton's cows. There were one or two words on each cow, and because they'd wandered around the pasture as cows are apt to do, the message was scrambled. "'Turn around so we can read you!' Anna shouted at one of them, leaning over the split-rail fence while I rearranged the words we'd collected so far on my notepad, trying to make sense of them. I stopped worrying about the puzzle and looked off in the trees, realizing that at that very moment my life was perfect. The joy of it swept over me with such force that I laughed aloud. Anna turned and looked at me, curious, and I kissed her. It was a long, long kiss that caused me to drop my notepad. I should feel guilty, but I don't, Anna said. She'd said the same thing when I kissed her in the movie theater. Why would you feel guilty? She shrugged and returned her attention to the pasture. I put a hand on her shoulder. Anna... Why should you feel guilty? She didn't turn around, but finally she answered. Because I'm married, she said. My life ended. I will never recover from this moment, I realized, as I felt myself falling into a deep black hole. Anna turned, stared at me with big wet eyes. I'm sorry, she whispered. Why didn't you tell me? I heard myself say from far away. I didn't know it would go this far. I thought we were friends. I didn't know I'd fall in love with you. Who is he? I asked, hating him. She shook her head, wanting to move on. I asked again. I waited. I married when I was too young. He was kind and handsome and accomplished. I thought that that's all there was to love. No one told me there was much more. Leave him and marry me, I said. I can't. I made a promise. I can't take it back. Tears rolled down her cheeks, one on each side, two for each heartbeat. I might as well douse him with kerosene and strike a match as leave him. He doesn't deserve that. Where is he, I asked. At home, where his work is. Anna's eyes were blazing with tears, alive and so beautiful. I looked into those eyes and tried to imagine life without them. If I were Errol Flynn, I would sweep her to my ship on a swinging rope. But I was not Errol Flynn. This was not a movie. As we stood there, the cows wandering, forgotten behind Anna, I realized that there was only one thing that I could do that would not wreck me. I saw that clearly as a condemned man sees each twist of the noose. I can't see you anymore, I said. No, she said, don't say that. She lunged and hugged me, so tight it squeezed my breath. Don't even say that. If you can't leave him, there is no room in your life for me. I'm not hearing you, she whispered into my collar. You're not saying this. I didn't answer. What answer could there possibly be? I walked her home past the prancing calliope figures made leering and twisted by the coming darkness, and we said goodbye, neither of us able to speak through our sobs. She came to my shop each morning 
and knocked on the door. Our eyes would meet through the window and I would shake my head and we would start to cry and she would go away and she stopped coming. I thought she must have left town, though I didn't know which day because she hadn't said goodbye. Then I discovered a graffito love note etched on the meat of a white birch in the park, her canted handwriting unmistakable. A few days later I found another clutched in the teeth of a stray mongrel cub. Then another, and another. I spent my days scouting for these lifelines to my Anna. Then the paper airplane, drifting against the clouds. There was a knock at my door, just as I propped the final window along the wall of my room. Well, hello, stranger. It was Millie the nurse, dressed in a small plaid skirt and floppy hat instead of her white uniform. Hi, Millie, I said. I opened the door only a crack. How about taking a girl out for a walk, she said. Millie fancied me and made no secret of it. She was smart and kind, a blue-eyed chipmunk. It was time to move on, I knew. The sunsets came and went, but my sadness stayed. I had to let Anna go. I'm working on accounts that really can't wait. I'm sorry, I said. Tomorrow? After work? Just as good, she shrugged, flipping her little palms up, then clasping her hands in front of her. I returned to my paper airplane and window frames and read until evening, until my eyes were puffed and my sinuses plugged. I thumbed through the soiled, waterlogged magazine I'd found by the railroad tracks the week before. Lightning Strike Survivor, the cover, had shattered in silver lettering. How could there be such a magazine? She was a magical creature. She was the wind. I watched for her all the time, imagining that I saw her in the distance, coming down the dusty road. And now this, paper airplane graffito love note, and the window blinds, where she had suffered over the words that would go into the note. I flattened the heavy creases on the unfolded airplane and reread the last line. This will be my last. I must try to let you go. I folded it and put it in my back pocket. The graffito had been my last thread to Anna. How I'd clung to it. Now it had been cut. I was in a mourning mood, and there seemed no escaping it. I grabbed my hat, threw my jacket over my shoulders, and headed to the movie theater. I'd avoided it since the cows, as I labeled that day the day my life ended. But the memories of the theater would spark. Couldn't possibly make me feel any more melancholy than I already felt, and perhaps a movie could carry me away from thoughts of Anna, if only for a few hours. I skirted the candy counter and sat in the lower section. The movie with Helen Hayes and John Barrymore was about a spoiled heiress and a soldier just returned from the Great War. By the middle, I considered leaving. Thoughts of Anna kept drawing me out of the story, and I couldn't follow it. You can't make yourself feel what you don't feel. The snippet of dialogue spoken to Helen Hayes by her best girlfriend caught my attention. It rang like one of the things I often thought when I was trying to convince the Anna in my head to spend her life with me. I watched the movie with a bit more interest. Somewhere along the way, Helen Hayes had married another man, only to realize that she was in love with John Barrymore. There was a scene between Helen and John, a clandestine picnic in a field. I can't. I just can't, Helen Hayes said to John Barrymore. Edgar would die a thousand deaths if I left him. My fingers and the tip of my nose began to tingle. I stared stunned at the screen. 
that I can't see you anymore, John Barrymore said. If you can't leave him, then we're just torturing ourselves. I squeezed the arms of the seat as if hanging on for my life. John Barrymore left Helen and moved away. The movie stayed with Helen, who stuck by her husband, who was a kind but dull fellow who brought no music to her life. All of the light had run out of Helen's eyes. At night, she cried in secret, going through a hope box filled with photos and memories of John Barrymore. Then one day, after what must have been a few years, Helen left her husband. It was a strange thing to happen in a Hollywood movie because Helen's husband hadn't done anything to deserve to be left. He didn't cheat or hit or treat her poorly, as was always the case in this sort of movie. Helen left because she didn't love him and couldn't bear to live a lie. She packed a bag and hopped the train to San Francisco, where she'd heard John might be living. She couldn't find him and took a job working in a cigar store. One day, John Barrymore came into the store. There was a poignant moment of recognition. Then John vaulted the counter, scattering tobacco displays. They kissed. They looked at each other in disbelief and kissed again. The credits rolled. I padded up the red carpeted aisle, wiping fresh tears from my face as the lights came up. I was shivering, uncertain of what had just happened, whether anything had happened. There was a soft rustle on the floor behind me. I turned. Anna's airplane lay on the floor, fallen from my pocket. I picked it up as others filed past. I read the last line again. This will be my last. I'd once asked if the graffito would stop her life from appearing in movies and books and songs. I think it will, she said. And it had. This will be my last. That line had filled me with such despair, but now it filled me with hope. I wanted to shout my joy to the stars scattered on the ceiling of the Roxy. It was only a matter of time. Suddenly, I felt certain. It might be days or months or years. It didn't matter. I ran out of the theater, my arms spread, and whooped at the real stars. I laughed and spun and imagined Anna around me in an evening dance. I sprinted to my shop, too bursting of energy to sleep, grabbed a four-sky sail from the shelf and spread it across the floor. I grabbed an ink-cut marker from the supply drawer and began my own long graffito confession. I wrote until my hand throbbed. A storm was coming. The pots and pans hanging outside of Rainier's tin shop clanged in the growing wind. The milkman's truck rumbled past. It must have been four or five in the morning, still time to post my graffito confession before sunup. Drops were pattering on the street as I leaned out my upstairs window and sunk moorings into the brick facing. Lightning flashed as I stood on the roof and sunk more into the chimney, sleeping through the summer. When I'd finished, the vast sail snapped in a violent wind, tickling the windows on the opposite side of the street. My confession covered the sail, barely readable from the street, except the final line, written in letters as tall as a man. I will wait for you. Nine-Fingered Maria by Hilary Moon Murphy was episode number 58, about a boy's friendship with a girl who keeps one of her fingers in a jar. On the blog, Julian told us, 
This is my favorite episode of Podcastle in a long while. I loved the modern fantasy setting, and the characters were children without being the naive little kids adults so often project onto young people. I, too, would have liked to know a bit more about what the spy family was spying on and why, but I think they were an archetype in the vein of the Sandman comics. They are spies because they are the spies. On the board, Osakat wrote, I got a big smile when I saw it was an HMM story, and it did not disappoint. Very well-painted picture of an odd family life. And after all, who didn't have an odd family? Mine was a lot more like Maria's, but some of my friends' places were more like the sterile household, minus the spying, I think. Great emotional scenes. The mother and son ambulance ride was touching. The kids' friendship rang true. Come on over to forum.escapeartist.info and join the conversation. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnitude.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Francis Thompson said, I fear to love you, sweet, because love's the ambassador of loss.